0: As you look around today, it seems like our country and our world are becoming more and more irreligious. And certainly that is true to a large extent. Many people in our country and around the world are repulsed by religion, whatever form it takes. They resist religion, they think religion is the enemy of tolerance. And so, It's a true statement that in some ways our country and our world are becoming more and more religious. I I don't have to take the time to give you a list of examples to prove that point because you can see it for yourself in life and in culture and in many other ways. However, although it seems like our country and our world are becoming more and more irreligious, and in many ways that's true, there is also a sense in which the entire world of humanity is actually moving toward the day when everyone will be religious in one way or another. During the last days, the Bible teaches that there is going to be a one world religion and it is going to be extremely popular and extremely influential. Satan is going to deceive people in unprecedented ways. In fact, I don't think we we can appreciate how strong and how effective the deception will be during the tribulation to pull people into this one world religion. By way of introduction to our text in Revelation 17, let me show you two examples of how powerful the deception will be. Turn, first of all, to the first book of the New Testament, though we'll be spending our time in the last book. Looking at Revelation 17, look at Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, this is a part of our Lord's Olivet Discourse, also a futuristic passage, a passage about the future. And notice what he says in verse 23. He says, then if anyone, Matthew 24, 23, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ... Or there, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Jesus states here, Jesus warns here, that the religious deception of the end times will be so powerful and so convincing that even true believers could almost be deceived. Think about that. Whenever you hear of someone going around claiming to be Jesus, and that's not uncommon, you hear that in society at times, you see it on the news, maybe you even have had, as I have, many personal uh, encounters with people who just show up and say, I'm Jesus, I'm the Messiah. Are you tempted to believe those people? Obviously not. No, no. You probably passed the guy off as a kook of some kind. But here Jesus says, with all the miraculous signs and wonders being performed during the tribulation period, it will be extremely convincing, Jesus said. His wording is fascinating. If possible, to deceive even the elect. Let me remind you of another example of how convincing the deception will be. On your way to our text in Revelation 17, stop in chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16. <clears throat> verse 12. This is a part of the bowls of wrath, the bowl judgments. We read in verse 12, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, So that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. What is this passage saying? It seems that these miracle-working demons will actually be able to convince the kings of the earth that they can defeat the God of Israel. That is amazing deception. Satan knows that Jesus is going to return to the land of Israel, to the Mount of Olives, in the land. So it seems that Satan has these demons deceive the nations to gather them to Israel because Satan wants to use all the armies to try to stop Jesus from coming back to take over as king. It may be that the nations are deceived into going to Israel under the impression that they're going there to fight Israel, but that Satan wants them there to fight Christ. We don't know for sure what they will be thinking. But we do know that the demons, this passage says, the demons will use miracles to convince the kings of the earth to gather all their armies there in Israel. The miracles will convince them that they can defeat God and Christ or the miracles will convince them that they can destroy Israel or something along those lines. So they all head to Israel. The power of deception during the tribulation period will be so strong that the people of the world without Christ will actually be pulled into a one world religion. We began considering that fact in our last study in Revelation 17 and we want to finish that chapter in this study. So turn with me to the next chapter, Revelation chapter 17, and please follow along as I read this chapter for us. I'll read the chapter in its entirety. It's not very long. And that way we kind of review verses one through six in our minds before we plunge into verses seven and following. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings, five have fallen, one is, the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth, and is of the seven, and is going to perdition or damnation. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings, who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast these will make war with the lamb and the lamb will overcome them for he is lord of lords and king of kings and those who are with him are called those who are with him are called chosen and faithful then he said to me the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are people's multitudes nations and tongues and the 10 horns which you saw on the beast These will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill His purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. the future seven-year tribulation period is going to be a time of chaos and destruction unlike anything this world has ever known. All you have to do is read through Revelation chapter 6 to see the seal judgments, Revelation chapters 8 and 9 to see the trumpet judgments. As a result of all of this catastrophe, people are going to be turning to religion for answers to all these catastrophes that will be taking place when the seal judgments are unleashed and the trumpet judgments are meted out upon the earth. Here's the irony. Even though people will be rejecting the truth, hating Christ, blaspheming God, and shaking their fist in defiance of God, yet they will be turning to religion more than ever. Religion will run rampant during the seven-year tribulation period. In fact, religion will be a dominant force. That's what we see depicted here in this 17th chapter of the book of Revelation. As we saw last Lord's Day, God calls this future one-world religion Babylon the Great. It will be the culmination of all of man's Religions wrapped up together, and God will see to it that it is destroyed once and for all. Now, the destruction of Babylon has already been predicted in the book of Revelation in chapter 14, verse 8, and chapter 16, verse 19. But if you look at those passages, you will see that no information is given about what Babylon is or why it will be destroyed. We're sort of just left hanging. Why is Babylon going to be destroyed? What is it? Well, chapters 17 and 18 fill in that void. Chapter 17 and 18 answer those questions. In chapter 17, we are told about the destruction of religious Babylon. And in chapter 18, we are told about the destruction of political slash economic slash commercial Babylon. When God depicts religious Babylon in the first Six verses of the 17th chapter, he describes it as a great harlot riding on a beast. As John saw this scene, verse 6 tells us he was amazed and he was perplexed. So an angel stepped forward to explain to him. Verse 7, that's where we pick it up. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her which has the seven heads and the 10 horns notice that the angel says that there are there are two things he is going to tell John about in the following unveiling of information two things he says he will tell John about the woman and about the beast with seven heads and 10 horns but notice as the chapter unfolds he flip-flops the two What I mean is, first, the angel tells about the beast in verses 8 through 14, and then he tells about the woman in verses 15 through 18. So as we move into verse 8, John will be told about this beast of the end times, and then when we get to verse 15, John will be told about this woman, this harlot of the end times. So verse 8 begins the description of the beast. The angel tells John, The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition or destruction or damnation. And those who dwell on the earth... By the way, that phrase in the original text would probably be better rendered earth dwellers. Because it's not merely talking about people who dwell on the earth. It is describing a certain group of people... Earth dwellers as opposed to people with heavenly citizenship. Earth dwellers, those who are attached to the earth. Those who are earth dwellers will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Well, naturally, this raises the question in our minds. To what is this referring? This beast That was, is not, is, and all of those confusing statements. To what is this referring? There are basically two options. Number one, this may have reference to the revival of a dead empire or dead kingdom. There is going to be a revival of ancient Roman Empire or the ancient Western Empire. And that may be what this symbolism is portraying. When the ancient Roman Empire, which has been thought to be dead, is revived, the people of the world may marvel and pledge their allegiance to this new superpower on the scene. But there's another possibility as to what is being referred to in this description. Option number two, the Antichrist will be killed or nearly killed and revived. The phrase, as if it had been mortally wounded, is the same phrase used back in chapter 5, verse 6 to refer to the death of our Lord. That is strong evidence for the view that this man will die and somehow be brought back to life. This deadly wound is emphasized several times in the book of Revelation. Go back to chapter 13 for just a moment. Chapter 13... Verse 11. John says, Then I saw another beast. This is the second beast. We usually refer to this man as the false prophet. I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. So the lying false prophet is going to use this key event to cause all the world to worship the first beast of Revelation 13. And that first beast, we know without any doubt from the description, is a reference to the Antichrist. Several times when John mentions the beast, the first beast, he refers to the fact that he had a mortal wound which was healed. And he does so in our text in chapter 17 as we'll see in in just a moment. It's interesting to note that back in chapter 11, verse 7, It says that this man comes out of the abyss. So if you put all of the information together, it is not a stretch to say that this man will die, or at least appear to die, descend into the abyss, and then come back to the earth. No wonder all the world will marvel. 2 Thessalonians 2 may also be related to this. In fact, I think it is. Back up with me a few books to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Right prior to First and 2 Timothy is 1 and 2 Thessalonians. <clears throat> 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Notice what Paul describes about the end times. He says in verse 9 of 2 Thessalonians 2, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Notice that, the lie. What is the lie? I believe that it's very possible that a counterfeit resurrection will be the lie, or at least part of the lie that Paul refers to here in verse 11. The world refuses to accept the resurrection of the true Christ, but they will evidently accept the resurrection of the false Christ. In fact, the word, the very word or title Antichrist not only means against Christ, and we understand that from English, anti-Christ, anti-Christ, but the Greek word anti, or that Greek preposition, also means instead of Christ. This man will be embraced by the world instead of the true Christ. We see this man depicted several times in the book of Revelation. For example, in Revelation 13, 1, John sees a beast rising up out of the sea. And then he begins to describe the beast and answers the question, what is this beast? Who is this beast? Well, as he describes the beast, it becomes clear that the beast is both a system and a person. The description that John gives in the early verses of Revelation 13 is of the world system of the end times. So the beast is a system, an empire. But at the end of verse 4 of that 13th chapter, the personal pronoun him appears And the personal pronouns continually used after that. Verse 5 of Revelation 13 says he. Verse 6 says he. Verse 7 says him. Verse 8 says him. So what is the beast? The beast is the world system headed up by the Antichrist, just as the Third Reich was headed up by Hitler. Several times John describes this beast as having seven heads, and ten horns. We saw that in, as we read through Revelation 17. Seven heads, ten horns. Interestingly, this is the same way Satan himself is described in chapter 12, verse 3. The seven heads probably represent seven successive world empires. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then the final kingdom of the Antichrist. The ten horns represent the ten kingdoms that will compose the final one world government. The book of Daniel portrays this idea in a couple of passages. In Daniel chapter 2, for example, there is a huge image of a man and the ten toes on the feet of the image represent the ten kingdoms that will compose the final one world government. In Daniel 7, there is a vision in which there are ten horns and from these ten horns comes the little horn, which is none other than the Antichrist himself. In fact, Daniel 7.24 clearly, explicitly says, the ten horns are ten kings. That's the exact quote from Daniel 7.24. The ten horns are ten kings. So in Revelation 17.7, when John describes the beast as having seven heads and ten horns, there's a sense in which he isn't really giving us something new to try to understand. We already know that the beast of the end times will be a one world government led by a man who himself is the beast. This one world government will be the culmination of all of the world empires of the past, and it will be composed of ten lesser kings or rulers. Ten kings, ten rulers, who will help the Antichrist govern the world. Now go back to Revelation 17 and we'll see this description all fits and comes together with what the angel tells John here. Revelation 17, verse 8. John is told, The beast that you saw was and is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to destruction. This is what we've already learned, what we've already seen. The beast or Antichrist will live, apparently die, and go into the the bottomless pit, the abyss, and then come out again. But John adds that he will eventually go to perdition or damnation or destruction. He will be the ultimate superhuman. He will be satanically inspired and energized and empowered He will seem invincible, but he will be destroyed, as we see in chapter 19. The last half of this verse, again, tells us what we've already learned. The end of verse 8 says, And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. The world is going to go hog wild after this man. He will be their Savior. He will have the answers concerning why the world is in such chaos from all of the tribulation judgments. The people of this world are going to give their allegiance to this man to the very end. After all, they are going to be in awe of the fact that he was and is not and yet is. But God's elect will not be deceived. This verse tells us exactly who will marvel. Those whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. The earth dwellers will marvel, but not God's elect. God's elect will be faithful to Him even though it will cost them dearly. They will be persecuted beyond description. In that time period, but by God's grace, they will be faithful to the true Christ to the very end. Verse 9 says, Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. By the way, the word mountains here in this verse is often translated in other passages, and rightly so, hills. It doesn't only mean a huge, majestic mountain like Mount McKinley or Mount Rainier. It also has reference to hills. So this seems to be a geographical identification. Do you know of any city which sits on seven hills? Of course, Rome. For centuries, Rome has been described as the city on seven hills. Rome was the capital of the world empire in existence in John's day. And one day, the Roman Empire will be revived. Furthermore, as I mentioned in the last message, the Babylonian religious system moved its headquarters to Pergamon and then eventually to Rome. So it shouldn't surprise us to see this geographical link. But there is more than a a geographical identification here, there is also a historical interpretation, as we see in the next verse, verse 10. There are also seven kings, five have fallen. One is, and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. What is this saying? The seven kings of this verse represent seven great world empires. Egypt, Syria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and the final kingdom of the Antichrist. John tells us, or the angel tells John, that five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. Now this all makes sense. When the Apostle John was alive, five kingdoms had already come and gone. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. During John's life, one kingdom was still in existence, the Roman Empire. And from John's point of reference, one of the kingdoms had not yet come, and still hasn't, And that's the final kingdom of the Antichrist. The last phrase of the verse says, and when he comes, he must continue a short time. In other words, the beast's kingdom, although it will be the most powerful and most comprehensive of all, will be short-lived. It won't go on forever. It won't go on indefinitely. It will only last a few years. Verse 11 says, the beast that was... And is not, is himself also the eighth, and is one of the seven, and is going to perdition or destruction. The beast will be the seventh and the eighth because he will be fatally wounded but come back again. So he can be the seventh and the eighth. But the angel emphasizes again that this seemingly indestructible beast who is revived, who comes back to life, will be destroyed and damned. Verse 12 says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. Here again, we have a reiteration of what we've already learned, but because it can be so confusing, the Lord reminds us of it time and time again. The Antichrist's final world empire will be divided up into ten kingdoms, or ten districts, ten zones, whatever it ends up being. And there will be ten kings who rule over these ten districts. By the way, I recently heard, I wish I would had jotted it down or gotten the source, but I recently heard that there has already been some discussion on a worldwide level about dividing the world into ten zones to make it easy to govern. Now whether or not that will happen before Antichrist takes over or after he takes over, we don't know, but it will happen. The Antichrist will be the supreme world ruler and he will administrate his rule through ten sub-rulers, ten kings. But again, the angel reminds John, it won't last a long time, The angel says for one hour, which is simply a way of saying, it will be brief. It will be brief. It seems like it's indestructible, undefeatable, but it will come to a crashing halt. Verse 13 says, these are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. The ten kings, the ten rulers will fully comply with the Antichrist's wishes. They will recognize Him, willingly recognize Him as the top dog. They're all going to have one common goal, one mind, one purpose, and that is the control of the world and the conquering of the one who has the rightful claim as the King of the world, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. That will be their purpose, their intent, their mind, all in one purpose. Verse 14 says, These will make war with the Lamb." And the Lamb will overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. And this is what I mentioned at the beginning of the message. The satanic deception will be so strong that, that there will be a, a, an ability to convince these kings that they can maybe defeat the true Christ. Think about that. That is just absurd. The satanic deception will be so strong during the last days that the kings of the world will actually believe they'll be able to defeat the true Messiah, Jesus. That's why they will all go to Israel in connection with the sixth bowl of wrath, as we saw back in chapter 16. The Antichrist and his rulers are going to make war with the Lamb. Few people who know about the Battle of Armageddon, few Christians who know that there's going to be a Battle of Armageddon recognize that that is its purpose. Most people think that Armageddon is just some huge, you know, World War III where everybody's fighting each other. That is not Armageddon. Armageddon is all these armies gathering in Israel to to make war with the Lamb, to try to defeat the Messiah. They're going to make war with the Lamb, this verse says. Who is going to win? Well, we don't even have to ask the question. The middle of the verse says very simply, and the Lamb will overcome them. It's that simple. There there really is no battle, as we see in chapter 19. There's no difficulty, no struggle, because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. The Antichrist will be man's greatest king, Satan's greatest king. The ten sub-rulers will be right up there with him. But they are nothing in comparison to the one who is Lord of lords and King of kings. And this verse tells us what other verses tell us, that when the Lord of lords and King of kings comes back to defeat the Antichrist and all of his hosts, we will come back with him. That's why the last phrase of the verse says, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. That is referring to us who know and love Christ. This is not a reference to angels. Angels will accompany Christ as a part of the second coming, but this is a reference to us. Nowhere in Scripture are angels said to be called. God's people are called, chosen, and faithful. God chose us in eternity past. He calls us in time, and He enables us to be faithful to Him to the end. And when Jesus Christ returns to this earth to defeat Antichrist and all of His hosts, we will come back with Him as we see in the actual description of the event in chapter 19. We will accompany Him. We will come back with Him. Well, once the angel finished this explanation of the beast, he then explained to John about the harlot riding the beast. So verse 15 turns to the second part of the description. Notice verse 15. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. As we saw in the last message, the harlot is the false religious system that will dominate the world during the end times. As amazing as it seems, the world is going to come together religiously in the end. All false religion began at Babylon and it will all come together again. Once the true church has been raptured and taken out of the way, there will be nothing to stop the false church from joining together with all religions as one. This final one world religion will dominate the world as indicated by the fact that the harlot is is depicted or described back in verse 1 as sitting on many waters. And here the angel tells John that the waters are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So this final one world religion will be pervasive and widespread throughout the world. In fact, it will be so dominant That the Antichrist and the other kings will go along with it for a while because it fits their purposes of unifying the world. The Antichrist and the other rulers of the world will use this false religious system to unify the world, but in time they will turn on her and destroy her. Verse 16 says, And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate. And naked, eat her flesh, burn her with fire. We know from Daniel 9, Jesus' words in Matthew 24, and Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians 2, that at the midpoint of the seven year tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to set up the abomination of desolation in the temple and declare himself to be God. And then. As we see back in chapter 13, the Antichrist will demand that all the world worship him. So at some point after that time, the Antichrist and his ten sub-rulers are going to turn on the harlot and destroy her. No more religion. No more competition. All worship must be toward the beast. And that's why this verse says they will make her desolate and naked, and eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. They're going to turn on the final world religion and strip it of its power, its wealth, its influence, its position, and they will utterly destroy it. As we saw back in verse 4, this false religious system will be very wealthy and very influential. Those are the two things the Antichrist and his rulers want. They want wealth. They want influence. So they will take them from the harlot and destroy her. Now why is this going to happen? The answer because it is exactly what God wants to happen. Notice verse 17. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill His purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. The ten sub-rulers will give their authority to the beast because they want to. The Antichrist and his sub-rulers will destroy the harlot because they want to. But without realizing it, they will be doing the exact will of God. God wants this false religious system to be destroyed. In fact, back in verse 1, the angel told John that he would show him the judgment of the great harlot. This is the way God is going to judge the harlot, by using the Antichrist and his sub-rulers. Isn't it amazing the way God works? Think about it. God wants this false religious system to be destroyed, and He wants the entire rebellious world to be wrapped up in the Antichrist, so that when Christ comes and destroys the Antichrist, the whole rebellious system of mankind will be wiped out. That's what this verse is saying. So the angel closes, verse 18. He says, And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. As we saw last week, this city is Babylon. The way the term Babylon is used here in chapters 17 and 18 seems to depict both a city and a system. This is very similar to the way we use the term Wall Street or Madison Avenue. Both of those are actual streets, but they also stand for the financial or advertising enterprises. In the same way, when John uses the term Babylon here in chapter 17 and 18, he is referring to a literal city of the end times, and he is referring to the religious, political, and commercial enterprises represented by the anti-God system. I told you last week that it is a fact that in 1986, before his death, Saddam Hussein began to rebuild ancient Babylon, which is 50 miles south of Baghdad. So it's possible, we don't know, it's possible that that very city will be the capital of the Antichrist empire, or it might be another city which God calls by the name Babylon because of its character. Many commentators believe it will be the city of Rome but that it's called Babylon because of its character. Time will tell exactly what city it will be, but one thing is for sure, to the Lord, the city is Babylon. The city is the same city that began this rebellion all the way back at the Tower of Babel. The capital city of the anti- Antichrist kingdom will be the culmination of the religious, political, commercial, rebellious Babylonian system which began in Genesis 11. And one day, it will all be destroyed. This chapter tells us about the destruction of religious Babylon. Chapter 18 tells us about the destruction of commercial-slash-political Babylon. Now, as we close this message, what does the Lord want us to take from this chapter of Scripture? That's a valid question. What, What can we take? I can think of a couple things right away. For one, the Lord wants us to realize... that false false religion is a reality. False religion is a reality, and it's only going to get stronger as we move closer to the end. God's truth is going to get more and more unpopular the closer we get to the end times. But secondly, the Lord wants us to be encouraged by the fact that He and His truth will win out in the end. Our response is the last word in verse 14, at least in my translation, the word faithful. God simply wants us to be faithful to Him and His truth to the very end, come what may. Are you being faithful? That's the question that confronts us as we close this chapter. Are we being faithful? Let's bow together as we close in prayer. Father, thank you for our time in your Word and the opportunity to consider what obviously is something important to you or else you would not have chosen to record it in Holy Scripture. And so if it's important for you, important enough to reveal and to be included in Holy Scripture, inspired or written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, preserved, then you want us to at least grapple with it and wrestle with it and seek to understand it the best we can. And though we may have difficulty understanding every single detail, it's very clear to us what this chapter is saying, that there is going to be a culmination of religion, as it were, in the end times, all coming together, all under one, as it were. One church, not the true church, not the bride, not the wife of the Lamb, but a harlot church, a false church. That will be so deceptive to the people who are earth dwellers of the end times. Grant that we would be true and faithful to you throughout our lives, come what may. Whether we are living close to this time or not, regardless of that, you call us to be faithful to you and your truth. As always, your call on us as your people in every era, by your grace. May that be true of us until Jesus comes, in whose name we pray, amen.